Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I heard of a recent poll that said 90% of Americans claim that they are Christians. Do you think by any way, in any way, shape, or form that 90% of Americans are Christian? It's more like 20%, if that, isn't it? It might even be less than the 20% that have made a real commitment to Christ. A lot of people who go to church claim to be Christians, right? But going to church does not make you a Christian. Jesus said He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. It's only through a personal relationship with Him that we truly become Christ followers. We're going to take a look today at instructions laid out for all leaders in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We hope you stay with us for today's edition of Practical Christian Living. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. We thank you that uh, we have directions from you, that you have preserved it from generation to generation. And we want to know what you are saying here in this chapter. Not what the ideas or philosophies of men are, but what you are saying. And Lord, we thank you for the church. We pray that you would continue to give us a kindred heart. Let us be of one mind and step out and do the work that you've called us to do. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is Character Matters. And we're going to be talking about the character of those that are in leadership in church. We're going to be talking about church leadership. This is important because in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, we were told that we have been entrusted with the truth. Timothy was encouraged to stay in Ephesus to make sure that they didn't teach any other doctrine. And Paul eventually spoke of the glorious gospel which had been entrusted to him. We in the church have had the glorious gospel entrusted to us. And we are also to pray for those that are in authority, that we can live a quiet and peaceable life. That's chapter 2 in 1 Timothy. And God desires that all men would be saved and all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to lift up everyone around us in prayer so that God could be doing a work in their lives. And it should not surprise us that he then goes to the, the character of those that are in leadership in the church, because the church is the mechanism by which the gospel goes into the world. Maybe a better way to word that would be that the church is the organism by which the gospel goes into the world, because the church is alive. The church is not this building. The church is not the chairs. The church is not the stained carpet that needs to be replaced. The church is you and I. We are the church and we have been entrusted with the gospel. And so the church was, first of all, established by Jesus. Jesus told Peter, you are Peter and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Now, Peter's name was changed from Simon and the name Peter means rock. Did you know that? So that literally Peter's name was Rocky. I think he even talked like Rocky. Yo, Adrian, come on up, bro. <laughs> Bad Rocky, I know, but nevertheless, you get the point. His name was literally the little rock or the pebble or the, the boulder. It wasn't Petra, which is a big rock. Jesus said, you are Peter, which is a pebble or a boulder. And he said, on this Petra, I will build my church. He didn't say on this Peter, I will build my church. He said on this Petra, Jesus is the rock that is higher than I. 
And the church has been built by Jesus and it has been built on Jesus. Now, the church is the only organization that Jesus ever established. And again, it was established in order to carry the gospel to a lost and perishing world. Jesus said, and I give you the keys to the kingdom so that we let people in heaven. We've been given the keys to the door, the, the gospel of Jesus by which people get saved. He also said a couple other things about the church. He said that the church would become like a mustard tree and the birds of the air would fill its branches. Now, the interesting thing is, is that a mustard plant is a bush, not a tree. He was saying the church is going to become abnormally large and the birds in parables are almost always evil. So the church would become abnormally large and there would be a lot of evil that would fill its branches. And I think that if we look in church history, we see a fulfillment of that. The church certainly has become abnormally large. We just think of the church in the United States. I heard of a recent poll that said 90% of Americans claim that they are Christians. Do you think by any way, in any way, shape, or form that 90% of Americans are Christian? It's more like 20%, if that, isn't it? It might even be less than the 20% that have made a real commitment to Christ. And so the church has become abnormally large. And what has been done in the name of Jesus or in the name of the church in Spain and in England, in the name of the church in England, uh, in the name of denominations, oftentimes genuine Christians were killed because they did not want to become part of what was the church. They were a part of the church that Jesus had established, but they would not become a part of the church of England or the church of Spain. And so they ended up losing their lives because of that. So the church has become abnormally large. There's going to be a lot of things that we look at and go, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's right. There was the Inquisition. There were Jews that were tortured and killed, called Christ killers by those who were who considered Christians. There were men that marched into war against Muslims in order to gain Holy Land with a cross in front of them, claiming that they were killing in the name of Jesus. None of these are found uh, as their church being involved in. Never are we told to do those things. We are involved on a spiritual level and there is a church that's become abnormally large. Also, Jesus said that the enemy was going to come and sow tares among the wheat. So here we have a portion of the church gathered together today. Not only a portion of the church in Calvary Chapel, but Calvary Chapel is a portion of the church in Tucson. There are a lot of other churches that are genuine serving God and gathering together. But the enemy has come into our midst and he's sown tares. Now, I have a special spiritual gift given by God that I can tell who's really genuinely a Christian and who's tares. And this morning, I'm going to have the tares stand up. So I'm just going to point to a purse. What? All right. So I have no gift and there is no gift to be able to tell who the tares are, right? Because Jesus said, don't go around trying to separate the tares from the wheat, but let it happen at harvest time. It's God's business. God can take care of it. But we realize that not everyone in the church is genuine. That means that there can be activity by someone in the church that isn't really a Christian because the tares have been sown there in order to cause discord, in order to cause problems, in order to cause difficulty. That means if anybody ever causes difficulty in the church, you're a tear. Just kidding. Okay. It's not what that means. It is an, a work of the enemy, though, to try to make us ineffective, to turn us away from that which is our real call. Now, let me cover church government quickly, and then we're going to get into the characteristics of those involved in church government. There are a lot of different kinds of church government. There are congregational-run churches, 
we are not a congregationally run church. A congregational run church will have, first of all, a formal membership. If you become part of that formal membership, then you have a vote. There are several things that take place that will be voted on every year. You could also pass a petition, get a number of people that want a, what is called a vote of confidence on the pastor, and then the members will gather together, which may or may not be those who attend on a regular basis. The members would gather together and the members would vote on whether or not they want their pastor there. Now, I have heard of pastors that have passed a vote of confidence by 51%, which means 49% of the people didn't want him there. I'd hate to get up and preach to a group of people that 49% didn't want me there. Wouldn't that be awful? I would need a vote of confidence. Do you guys really want me here? I'm just going to go. 49% of you don't want me here, then I'm going to go. I'll go ahead and leave. Uh, the problem with congregationally run churches is that oftentimes the pastor becomes a hireling. If he doesn't do what the body wants him to do, if he doesn't preach what they want him to preach, then he ends up getting fired. Now that could be said in general. If the pastor's not doing, or if he's not fulfilling his job, if people aren't being fed and growing spiritually, then people can vote with their legs, right? You just stick your leg up in the air to vote. No, you leave, right? And if you leave, then that's kind of like, you know, the pastor's not really doing what he's supposed to do. However, you don't want to be a hireling. You don't want to be afraid of the people. You don't want to turn into a politician where I just try to get as many people behind me as I can. You want to be able to answer for, to God and do what God calls you to do. Now, there are also board-run churches. That is that there's a group of people in the church, 20, 30, sometimes 12, a group of guys generally that are on the board of the church. They're the ones that hire the pastor. They're the ones who can fire the pastor. They're the ones that make the decisions. Usually in a board-run church, there's a board that's made up for everything. There's a board of men to choose the color of carpet. There's a board of people to do this and to do that. Again, the problem can be that the pastor can become a hireling to that board, doing what the board wants to do in order to keep his job. There is then a type of government by which you have a pastor who is given vision and direction for the church. He surrounds himself with a group of men that are called a board of directors or a board of elders. And these guys help to keep him in check. There is another form of government that some have called the Moses model, where the pastor's kind of on his own. The pastor runs everything. It's his church. He makes decisions for what happens and where it goes. And if people don't like it, then they can leave. And uh, Calvary chapels have been accused of having the Moses model. And even though that term may have been used by some in Calvary chapel, I don't believe it is the Moses model. Because I think, first of all, I think the Moses model is dangerous. Anybody that doesn't have to answer to anyone is going to find themselves struggling. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there always needs to be checks and balances. And by law, for a 501c3 corporation, some of you, for some of you guys, that's like algebra. You start throwing letters out there and you're like, what? 501c3 corporation is a corporation that can receive donations. And when you give the donations to us as a 503c corporation, then you don't have to pay taxes on the money that you give. So whatever you give, you don't have to pay taxes. And then we as a church don't have to pay taxes on that money that we receive. So we as a church don't pay taxes. Because of that, there are a lot of people that misuse the 501c3 corporation. A lot of people that claim that they're churches when they're not really churches. There's some other kind of, of, of organization. We are a non-profit corporation. 
So by law, when there is a nonprofit corporation, you've got to have a board of directors that runs things. They oversee financial insight into the church and they make those kinds of decisions. And so churches, including Calvary chapels, will have a pastor given direction and vision. Then they have a group of men that they are surrounded with who are supposed to provide direction for them. Now in our church, let's talk about our church. Uh, because church governments are good and bad, or better and worse. I don't know if it's so much so that one is awful and one is really good. I think that if you have a congregational run church and the people of the church are spiritually minded, it's going to work. I think if you have a board-driven church, if the board is spiritually minded, it's going to work. I think that if you have a board of directors that works with a pastor, then that's going to work if these guys are spiritually minded. If any one of them get carnal, if any one of them start making decisions based upon the flesh, then it can all fall apart and it can all be bad. So for our church government, we have elders that minister to the body. These are men that are spiritual, that have proven themselves in ministry, and they oversee the spiritual needs of the body. They pray for the fellowship. They visit those who are sick. They anoint with oil those who need healing. Uh, they spend time talking with the body. If there's a church discipline problem that uh, rises in the church, we ask two or three of these elders to get together and go and handle this church discipline problem, to investigate it, to see if there's really a problem, to see if their restoration is possible, to see if a person needs to be removed, to see if, if a pastor's having a conflict with somebody that's in the body, to see if that pastor really is doing what's right with that conflict that takes place. These are, these are elders. They oversee the spiritual aspect. Then you have the pastors. And pastors are elders as well, even though some of our pastors are young. We have a, several pastors in their 20s, but they're elders when it comes to spiritual things. These guys are not brand new Christians by any means. They've walked with the Lord for a lot of years and uh, they know what they're doing when it comes to these things. But a pastor is to be an elder as well. Then we have our board of directors. For us, we have six guys that are on the, the board of directors. Some of the mistakes people make when they're choosing boards of, board of directors. Sometimes they put their family on the board. So the board is, this is not us, by the way. The board is their wife, their mother-in-law. Anybody see problems with the mother-in-law being on? Sorry, Sally, I love you. That's my mother-in-law. Um, uh, their children on the board. And, and it's obvious, becomes a conflict of interest, doesn't it? When a pastor of a 503C corporation puts relatives on his board, he obviously doesn't want to be called on any decisions that he makes. And it is an obvious conflict of interest. And if by chance you're listening to this or you're here and you have a 503C corporation that has family members on it, get them off of there. Find men you can trust, women you can trust to put on the board so that you can have someone that you answer to. I also believe that it's important for the board of directors to be able to fire the pastor. And um, there's, you know, there's a point of trust that has to be there. But you need to be able to have that ability to say, listen, you're going whack. You're out of here and be able to handle that. Otherwise, a pastor could get involved and do whatever he ends up wanting to do. Now, our board of directors, we have a couple guys that are here from our fellowship. We have uh, Pat Lazovich from Calvary Chapel in Sierra Vista, been a good friend of mine for many years, uh, Gino Geraci out of uh, Colorado, and a few other guys that are on the board. Let's just say that you began to notice that I had gone haywire. You began to notice that I started wearing $20,000 shoes, just for example, or that 
I started teaching something that was obviously wrong, or I started taking advantage of people within the church, and you came to me and I said, little shoddy, and I wouldn't listen to you. So what do you do? You say, what's my recourse? Well, you can go to one of our elders, one of our elder board members. You can call up to my secretary and say, I'd like to know who's on the board of directors, and you can call and talk to them. Then they would gather together and talk with me. And hopefully, if I'm doing something that's wrong, it's an oversight committee that will be able to handle any problems that arise within a pastor. And I want to say, from, from my perspective, I've always wanted to be completely submissive unto that board. We do things generally when there's 100% agreement. If there's not 100% agreement as to directions we should take or something that we should do, or buildings that we should buy or move into or redo, then we just put them off. We just say, you know what, let's not do it until we all understand the direction that we need to be going. So that's our church government. Now, aren't you guys glad you guys came? Now you got an idea of, of how the church is run. Church government is good or bad, not based upon the type of government that it is, but based upon the character of those involved. And so here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says in verse 1, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, the term bishop, we don't, we don't use it in Calvary Chapel. Bishop, for some churches, is the pastor. So when someone says, I'm bishop so-and-so, in their denomination or in their church, it simply means that they're a pastor. Other churches use it as a hierarchy. You have bishops that are over cities or states. You have archbishops in the Catholic church, which are over large sections. Calvary Chapel, each church is independent. So we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have bishops or archbishops or things like that that are above. Each church has its own board, which makes decisions on its own. The word for bishop here in verse 1 of chapter 3 is the word episcopate. Episcopate, it's interesting. There's only used four times in the New Testament. Two times to speak of leaders within the church and two times to speak of Jesus. When Jesus said on the day of his triumphant entry to the Jews that were questioning him about the people worshiping him, Jesus said, you did not know this day, the day of your visitation. That word there is episcopate, the day of your bishop, the day of your leader. In other words, the, the pastor who fulfills the role of the episcopate or the presbytos, which is the word elder, okay, is not doing it on his own. He is not the presbytos. He is not the episcopate. That is Jesus. And those that pastor have been entrusted the care of those who belong to Jesus. That is each person in this room. You don't belong to me. You don't belong to Calvary Chapel. You belong to Jesus Christ. And he has taken certain men and entrusted your spiritual care to those men. Never is it about building disciples or followers for yourself. In the 1970s and 80s, early 80s, there was a group of people called the Discipleship Movement. Any of you guys remember that? You've been around long enough to remember the Discipleship Movement. The idea was kind of like Amway. You always got to have somebody above you. And then you always have five or six people below you. And that person has somebody above them, five or six people below them, and the church would spread by this discipleship. The problem was, is that you could end up being the disciple of Robert Furrow. And that's pretty pathetic. Nobody wants to be a disciple of Robert Furrow. When the Bible says make disciples of all men, we want to make disciples of Jesus. And aren't, isn't, aren't you glad to know that you're a disciple of Jesus? You're not a disciple of Calvary Chapel. You're not a disciple of Chuck Smith. You're not a disciple of Robert Furrow or Greg Laurie or John MacArthur or Charles Wendell. You're a disciple of Jesus. And we 
are gifts that have been given to the church to be able to minister and help you in that relationship to the master that you serve, which is Jesus. So we are co-laborers together with the chief shepherd. We are pastors, which means shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the episcopate. But if someone desires that role of an episcopate, of a bishop, then he desires a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But there's got to be a certain character that this guy has. Verse 2 begins to give them to us. A bishop or an episcopate then must be blameless. That is above reproach. You should live your life in such a way that people can't point to it and say, there's a problem. I'll give you a few examples. Sometimes people live with a woman. Sometimes they live with a woman whom they have a relationship with. When you challenge them on it, they say, uh, we don't do anything. And you can't tell me I can't live here. And I'm going to be broke anyway if I don't live here. So they got to make excuses for why it's okay to live together. The Bible says avoid even the appearance of evil. So if you have somebody who wants to be a pastor or a leader and he's living with a woman that he's in a relationship with, I'm not talking about living with his mother or sister, okay? I'm talking about living with the woman that he has a relationship with, then he's not living above reproach. Because when you say, we're not doing anything, the rest of us go, right! When you say, listen, we sleep in the same bed, but we sleep under different sheets. Uh-huh. Listen, we all know what it would be like to be living with someone we're attracted to, sleeping in the same bed with them, being under different sheets for protection. All right? We're skeptical. We'll just put it that way, okay? We're skeptical. And we would say to you that you are not living above reproach. To be going into a home, shutting the door, taking a shower, crawling in the same bed, and saying we're not involved sexually is not living above reproach. You're not being blameless. And so a pastor, an elder, an episcopate has got to be above reproach. He needs to be above reproach in his finances. He needs to be above reproach in his relationships. He needs to be above reproach in his relationship with the opposite sex. He needs to be above reproach in all aspects so that no one can point and say there's a problem. And so the, the bishop must be blameless, a husband of one wife. Now there's controversy on this one. Some believe that this means that he can never have been divorced. The Assemblies of God, for example, will not allow anyone who's divorced to be a pastor in the Assembly of God. I disagree with that. This, uh, what about somebody who was divorced before they came to Christ? What about somebody who, it, they were divorced by their spouse when they didn't have anything to do with it? They didn't want to get divorced, but they themselves were divorced. In their day, even as there is in Utah today, there are polygamists, certain cities of Utah especially. That was, by the way, kind of a joke. It didn't go over too well today in general. But I'm glad you politely laugh after I tell you that that was a joke. Just as there are sister wives today, how about that one, huh? Just as there are sister wives today, there were sister wives in their day. Not called the same thing, but there was polygamy taking place. And so Paul was simply saying, in the church, if you are a polygamist, then you can't, you can't be a leader. You can't be an elder, okay? A husband of one wife, temperate, which means self-controlled, sober-minded, which means serious about the things of the gospel. There's a time to have fun. I don't think as a pastor or a leader, you always walk around, I'm serious, I'm sober-minded. Serious all the time. And it's good to have fun. I like to have fun. I like to razz my friends. They razz me for sure. But when it comes to the things of the gospel and people getting saved and committing their lives to Christ in the church, sober-minded, of good behavior. Certainly don't want somebody misbehaving all the time. Hospitable, 
meaning that he's open to bringing people in. He's approachable, uh, able to teach. It's always a good thing for a pastor to be able to teach. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.